Today's tip of the week comes from Tim Schmoyer, who is the founder of Video Creators. You can check out his podcast and his YouTube channel. So Tim says, the problem with keyword optimization on YouTube is that there are literally millions of videos already optimized with the exact same keywords. When a creator or a brand tells me how much work they're putting into their keywords, I ask, well, that's great. How's that working out for you? I usually get a depressing answer. Furthermore, YouTube's search and discovery systems are already so smart that they know exactly what's in your video when you upload it. So they don't need that metadata information to understand just exactly what your video is all about. Instead, consider optimizing for your most ideal viewer. What YouTube really wants to know is, how do viewers respond to this video? Do they watch it? Do they quickly abandon it? Do they click and watch more? Does it leave them satisfied? These are all viewer signals. The more positive the answers are to these kinds of questions, the better your video will perform and create a channel that's ripe for explosive growth. That means optimizing your titles, thumbnails, the opening seconds of each video, and then the rest of the video itself for your most ideal viewer. As you optimize for people, not robots, you'll be more likely to win on YouTube. Welcome to Inside the Creator Economy right here on Fireside. I'm Jim Latterback, and I'm glad to have you here. Hello, everybody. How are you? Cassie, what's going on? You know what? I don't know how you can, if it sounds good or not, I am in day three, but officially day two of government mandated quarantine. I am in a room. I've got two beds, a work bed and a sleeping bed. And that's about it. So if, if I'm hard to hear, I apologize for that. Oh, you sound fine. You sound a little hollow, but you sound a lot better than I expected, given that you're locked up somewhere. Did you end up in Auckland or are you like somewhere else in New Zealand? I'm in Auckland. I'm about five minutes from the airport. So transport was easy. And it's been a very fascinating past three days. Completely different. Everything I experienced in the United States. Everybody's handled things kindly, and the process has been clear and concise, but it is strange to wrap my head around this still that I'm, I'm locked down for 15 days. But yeah. hey, it needs must. Yeah, locked down for 15 days, and your family's just a couple miles away. It's uh, It must be hard. It really is. And I think the worst part is, Jim, and let's all keep this a secret, I lost all of my credit cards when I was out in Nashville. <laughs> so I can't even order online groceries until I get a new credit card. <laughs> can we send you online groceries ourselves? Is there an address where we can send you things? I've actually had quite a few little drop-offs. It's been really nice. I definitely won't starve and life is good in quarantine. Yeah, as good as it can be. All right, well, let's jump right into it and talk about some of the stuff that's been going on in the last week. So I'm going to take on this first topic, a story last week that I read from CNBC. They just reviewed the new Carrot Black card. This is a debit card, but it what it does is it gives credit to unbankable creators. A lot of creators are out there, they're making money, but they can't get credit from banks because they don't have a paycheck, they don't have predictable revenue, things like that. So Carrot has come out with this black card to help them out. Now, the card is great for creators, but what's really revealing, I don't really want to talk about the card. What I want to talk about is how Carrot decides if you're worthy. Now, here's how you get approved, and there's a little bit of black magic in there, but they really look at your follower or your subscriber count to make sure it's above a certain threshold. Now, according to Carrot's CEO, Eric Way, the baseline is either 100,000 YouTube subs, 
125,000 Instagram followers, or hold on to your hat if you're wearing one, 2.5 million TikTok followers. Wow. Yeah. So you know what this means? It means that every TikTok follower is worth, according to them, just 4% of YouTube sub, or to put it in a different way, 25 TikTok followers equals one YouTube sub, and it's only 1.25 to one on Instagram. So that's an incredible devaluation of TikTok's subscriber base for every user. By the way, let's be clear. It's not measuring the impact of the subscribers or the power that a TikTok creator has with their subscriber bases. It's based on what you can earn on TikTok versus the value on other networks. So they're looking at how much money is coming in. They're not trying to determine how valuable a subscriber is, but it really is shocking. And, you know, this is financial factoring. These are a bunch of quants sitting in a room looking at data, trying to figure out who they should take risks with. And there aren't a lot of favorites in quantitative financial factoring like this. So that 25 TikTok followers equal to one YouTube subscriber, that value, I mean, I don't know, that blows me away. Cassie, what'd you think? Absolutely. When I saw this last night, it really, really kind of, I had been sitting in my work bed. I might've, uh, my knees might've buckled only because to what you said too, because it's a quant financial look into this, what they have completely missed is the fact that TikTok is the thing. TikTok is the place where communities can be rallied. And I think the money is going to start coming in. And also when they take a look at numbers, like those are big numbers, right? 100,000 YouTube subs, 125,000 Instagram, like even those on their own, there are people with smaller followerships than that who make bank dependent on who they are actually influencing. So it feels to me like a couple of number crunchers or a few got into a room and get, I understand why, because I've worked in banks and financial institutions, but then it doesn't feel like anybody like you or me sat them down and went, hey, (laughs) there's a different way to look at this. Well, I think it's predictability of revenue and they necessarily have to let everyone in. What they're really looking for are customers who are going to be profitable for them. Or in other words, if they give money to somebody that they don't just run away with it and don't pay them back. So I kind of get that. Go ahead. I was going to say, and also I was thinking about the numbers of people who might actually hit this kind of baseline. And you're right. They have to go for the predictability from an income perspective. But there can't be lots of people who are sitting across all of these big numbers. So they're hedging their bets in probably the right way for them. Yeah. And look, the revenue development on TikTok is definitely not as mature as it is on Instagram or YouTube. I also, I I put this in my newsletter this week, which I posted on LinkedIn yesterday. And I had a comment from, you know, a pretty interesting comment, which is, yeah, that's great. I'd probably, uh, you know, this commenter said between 10 and 15 subs per one YouTube is probably a little bit more like it, which, you know, I kind of get. But also it doesn't take into the fact that brands want to be on TikTok and there's value for a brand being Mm -hmm. on TikTok and that value or that desire will tend to push things up maybe beyond what the actual value and return is. That's right. And it's only going to become more and more bankable, lol, Mm -hmm. as time moves on. Exactly. But still, actually, it reminds me in the early days of Snap, when I remember talking to some folks and they were saying that, oh, you know, we think one view on YouTube equals 10 views on Facebook equals 100 views on Snap. This was maybe in 2015 or 2016. I think it's it's a lot different now. But those are interesting numbers and they seemed a little legit, but we're not even talking views here because it, in the end, views don't matter. We're not talking about the value to a brand. We're talking about how much revenue will that creator get in mm-hmm. and how much and will they be able to pay back the money that they get through the carrot card? 
That's right. And are they basing this all on the ability for creators to be paid by the platforms themselves? Or is there a way that they're looking at also the potential sponsorship deals that are going to come off the back of the size of the followerships? I have to assume it's all the revenue coming in because in the end, that's what you would do. You would say, look, you know, when you go and apply for a credit card or you go get a bank loan or whatever, they're going to look at all your income and look at your expenses and figure out, you know, whether you have the ability to pay that back. And, And there's other things in that sort of, it's not actuarial tables, but I assume they're similar. Yeah, I gotta it's think a bit it's, wild. It's yeah. wild for my brain, Jim, because in New Zealand, like my first day here, I walked into a bank. <laughs> it was like, I need a bank account. I potentially need some money and some loans. And they're like, sweet. I mean, it was 20 years ago, but it's a completely different beast here. So this kind of stuff is really interesting to me. Yeah. Well, it was also back in the days when everyone thought Americans were rich, right? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Anyway, a lot more will come out of this story, but I do think it's really interesting to try and come up with comparative metrics between YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Snap, other networks, both from the value of a view and the value of a follower or a subscriber. This is not the end answer, but I challenge anybody who's listening who's a reporter or wants to look into this more, I'd love to get a better look at the comparative metrics between the three platforms, four platforms, however many you end up with. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I do too. It's it's fascinating. I mean, from the kind of the birth of social media, really from while I was working in big brands, obviously it wasn't about the money, but it was as far as what a creator could make. But from a brand perspective, we tried to crack all those numbers too, right? From an engagement perspective, what did a view on one mean to a view on another? And did that help with brand ROI or resonance, community building? So I feel like it's that next step in the conversation around the creator economy. So I would love to see that too, if there are any journalistic folks out there who want to dive into it. Well, and this is my last comment on this story, but we are going to see more things like this. They may not be public, but they're going on because more and more as we move to Web3, people are looking at how do you invest in a creator? If you tokenize a creator, how much is that token worth? You look at, you know, BitCloud, an imperfect place where creators, famous people, influencers have tokens behind them and you can see the relative value there. So determining the value of a creator and, you know, aggregating the places where they're putting content and that other stuff is going to become more and more of a thing and more and more of a science that people try to get right. So this is really just the beginning. Yes. All right. Topic number two. So this is an interesting topic. I saw this while I was traveling through the United States last week, and I popped it into our little spreadsheet because I wanted to come back to it and talk about it because I'm not sure if you follow these folks, Jim. So it's called So You Want to Talk About. They've got 2.9 million followers on Instagram. And basically the, the big headline in the 10 series part that they posted was So You Want to Talk About Instagram Sponsorship. And this channel has no problem with talking about big issues and topics, but this felt very, very close to the heart of the creator and the editor who is in charge of this channel. And I really thought it was interesting because what this is, is they look really deep into what they call Instagram silently rolling out a censorship style setting, right? So, and it's the limited sensitive content setting that's been rolled out. I don't know if you've got it on your channel yet. I've got it on mine. And basically you go into your settings account. And then you've got different one, two, three different ways to limit quote unquote sensitive content. So you can either allow it all, which allows you to see photos or videos that could be upsetting. You can limit it where Instagram will choose for you what might be upsetting or offensive. And then you can limit even more. So they're saying it's kind of like child controls, all that kind of stuff. And it started rolling out on July 23rd. What this 
particular group of people and curators did was they took screenshots of the pre-setting feature and then the post to show that actually what they feel like is happening is there's active censorship of accounts that potentially might be a little bit more in-depth from a political standpoint. One of theirs was they went to their discovery and they put screenshots out, which I thought was neat. They basically, 20% of folks who interacted with their first post before the new settings, 20% were following, weren't following. Once they changed the settings, it was only 6%. So basically they said as a content creator, this is something that could be potentially very, very harmful. People like change.org, BIPOC creators, queer creators, they're all seeing a huge, huge downfall and decrease in their engagement and in the ability for them to be found on Instagram. And so I thought this was something that we should talk about because, you know, when these kind of features roll out, I think I would hope that the folks at Instagram realize what some of the reverberations are going to be. And I wonder if they're doing it on purpose. Yeah. So first of all, I did not know. So you want to talk about I now follow that channel. I also was not aware of this, but I dove into it and I got put into the group and I have it in my account and I uh, it was set to the limit sensitive content default. I had no idea. I wasn't happy about it either when I found out. I actually also wasn't even sure which of the three I would really want to do. Do I allow? Do I limit? Do I limit even more? I just changed it to allow. But to your point, Instagram, you know, it's one of those things like you have to tell people, you have to disclose this sort of thing. If you're going to be making changes that affect what people see on a social video platform at such a high level, you have a responsibility, I believe, to inform your users that you're doing this and allow them to easily find it and understand what the ramifications are. So that's my first thought. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I'm with you on this. And Jess is the girl who wrote all of this stuff. She said, you know, Instagram, it's so important for the channels to recognize the harm that the algorithm can cause and does to silence specific creators. And, you know, that's especially creators of color and creators with intersectional lives. And if that, again, it goes back to that question we asked maybe in our first podcast, Jim, about like, who owns what is offensive or what is, you know, a little bit too risque? What are the conversations? And it looks like they just rolled this out. So you were defaulted to limited. I think that's interesting. Most of my friends who I've talked to, and they were defaulted to allow. So I don't know if they like looked at mine and were like, oh, she's a queer woman. We better allow. <laughs> well, that's actually interesting in and of itself. I do. I want to give Instagram a little benefit of the doubt here because I do think they're addressing something important, which is, you know, first of all, protecting kids is important, but there's a lot of awful stuff that happens on these networks. And, you know, when I want to go up on Instagram, I don't necessarily want to see awful, nasty things. Mm -hmm. Now, I do want to see insightful, interesting stuff from the types of creators that you talked about. The other thing I think that's I'm also going to give them a bit of a pass is it's funny because it just also in one of the things that she put in there, she talks about if a content creator or anybody who doesn't work at Instagram tells you they understand the inner workings of how Instagram's algorithm works, just let them know they're lying to you. Well, she infers that the people at Instagram know what the algorithm is doing, but these algorithms are so machine learning AI based. And I have to assume, I mean, again, I don't work at Instagram, so I can't tell you, but I got to say, if it's anything like Facebook, which I'm sure it is because they're owned by the same company, even the people who work there don't know what the algorithms are doing. They're training, yeah. they're setting guidelines, they're doing this and that, but they're basically just letting the, the machine run with it. And so 
You do end up with these sort of problems where some people may or may not, you know, may get excluded. Yeah. Some of the education stuff, I hope, and I'm an optimist, I hope over time they train their algorithm better. And so the things that some of the creators you talked about are seeing, their numbers go down, they bounce back up. We will have to see, though. It's only been, what, a couple days, right? Yeah, maybe about a week. You know, I remember maybe it was five or six years ago at VidCon, we were having very similar conversations about the YouTube algorithm, right? Where everybody, uh, quite a few of the younger creators were like, YouTube, you need to go and change your algorithm. And YouTube was like, it's an algorithm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We're going to try our best to retrain it. I thought one more interesting topic on this point that Jess made was she said, instead of silently rolling out features that limit the content that people see on their accounts, one thing that Instagram could do would be to utilize some of their tech to better address harmful things on the platform, like the messages, the comments, posts reported for violating T's and C's, blatant racism, all that kind of stuff. I know earlier, I think it was last week, a country music artist named Mickey Guyton got absolutely hammered with horrible, horrible threats after um, she was mentioned on GMA, which was unfortunate in itself. But there were humans, like actual humans, just going in and reporting accounts. And some of the things that she got were vile. So the fact that Instagram is doing these kinds of changes and still not holding tight to like death threats and blatant racism, you know, there's still a lot left to be done to train that algorithm. Yeah, and it'll never be completely trained and we're, we're going to see issues like this come up. But I do think disclose, disclose, disclose. If anybody's listening to this there, please, when you make these changes, just let us know. Yeah. Just let us know. So if those of you who are listening here for the first time and those of you who are listening online, we do a couple of news stories up top and then we talk about a big idea topic. And at the end of this topic, we invite our studio audience, if they want to, to come up and comment on any of the three stories that we just talked about, the two news stories and the big idea topic. So those of you who are listening in the studio audience, if you feel like you have something you want to say, give us a sec and, and we'll open up the floor as it were. And if nobody wants to come up, we'll just jump right into the next block. But anyway, I want to jump to the big idea topic right here. And this something I've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks. So you may have heard about Facebook's new newsletter platform, yes, called Bulletin. Now, Bulletin, they launched a couple of weeks ago with 10, 20 handpicked different newsletter writers like Malcolm Gladwell and a bunch of others. The news that happened last week is they announced another 31 writers coming to the platform. You know, I mean, that's really unremarkable in and of itself. I wouldn't even be bringing it up. But as I thought about it more, what this signifies for Facebook is epic. Now, for years, Facebook and other social platforms like YouTube and Instagram and others argued in the U.S. that under Section 230, a rule that they were not media companies, but they were platforms. And as platforms, they weren't responsible for the content on their platforms. They weren't responsible for what people put up there. They were just the vessel. And you could put whatever drink you wanted into it, and you were responsible for whatever you drank. I don't know if that's a good analogy, but we're going to go with it. So when Bulletin first came out in my newsletter, I criticized them because it was only open to a select group. And, you know, we talked about this last week a little bit. And, you know, is that really right? If you're, you know, if you had put something out in, in a platform creator world and people can't use it, is it really something good? I was kind of negative. Well, you know what? I was wrong. What I should have done was congratulated Facebook because they finally admitted they were a media company. Check it out. I mean, think about it. Handpicking writers incentivizing them, giving them money to produce exclusive content for your site, excluding everybody else. Well, guess what? 
That's kind of the textbook definition of an internet-based media company. So, congratulations, Big Blue, and welcome to the club. You're a media company. What do you think? Do I got it right, Cassie? What do you think? I love this reimagination because the more that I read this, the more that I love it. Because you're right. And I was reading about Section 230 as well. And it's like, wow, by launching Bulletin, by looking at it through this lens, Big Blue has not only, you know, congratulations, welcome to the media world, but also like they're going to, wow, they're going to have to tread very, very, very carefully now. Well, it is a separate name of a company. Okay. And, you know, you've got big conglomerates that own media companies, but, you know, they also own cable companies or they own car companies or who knows what. But I do think that Facebook's been sort of walking the line of not being or being a media company and trying to argue that they're not a media company for so long. If you continue to do things like this, you're just making yourself look more and more like a media company. And that makes you responsible for the content on your site. Oh, completely. This is it's editorial. It is getting like you said, it's not open to everybody. So you don't get to pick your vessel and put what drink you want in it. They're going, here's your vessel and here's your drink. So I'm almost lost for words because I think this is brilliant, Jim. Yeah, and it's not. I mean, exclusivity is exclusivity, right? I mean, you can have an exclusive platform. Yeah. But it's paying the people who are producing the content and posting on your platform that turns you into, I think, a media company. Again, I-A-N-A-L. I am not a lawyer. But it just seems like, I don't know, it just seems like this is what media companies do. Yeah, it sure does. And, you know, I wouldn't even be able to argue that they've been really tiptoeing around this for so long. And they're a media company. They are. They are. So as I said before, if anybody in the audience wants to come up and talk about, is Facebook really a media company? Is a TikTok subscriber only 125th of a YouTube subscriber? What about Instagram and what they're doing with censorship? Put your hand up now as we round out our discussion of this big topic. You know, Facebook is doing other things that make them seem more like a media company. We've been working with a, at VidCon with a platform called Super.Events, which is really interesting. And they've been paying creators to come on to this great pop. We've been working with them on it. It's great. It is a separate thing as well. So I just wonder, Facebook, you know, Facebook is the platform, Instagram, WhatsApp, the Oculus stuff and the metaverse and other things. But if this means that, you know, the Facebook, big Facebook really isn't a media platform after all, and, and that I'm wrong, which is entirely possible, happens all the time. What it also signals is, is Facebook expanding the definition of what their company is to add in these new services and capabilities in media? And does it mean that, who knows, Facebook might buy a big media company someday? I don't think they will, but it seems like this is an area of business that is a little bit of a departure for them. Yeah, it feels like it wouldn't be, I mean... I don't think it would be completely unimaginable that at some point in the future, especially with how the creator economy in Web 3.0 is evolving, I don't think it's something that you could say definitively it wouldn't happen. It looks like, you know, I could actually see a future in which they do purchase a media company or they just, they just become it because it was an interesting three weeks being at home in America and watching media and how it's evolved and the traditional side of things versus the opinion side of things versus the placement versus the conglomerates. I wouldn't put it past them, Jim. Yeah. And what is, what does it look like that? What, give me one or two just sort of, because it's a really interesting point you brought, you know, you're sort of away in New Zealand and you come back here for a sort of three week immersion lesson and what America is like now. What, any sort of, sort of, can you put your finger on a couple of insights that you saw that was like, wow, that's so different. So weird. Cause you know, we're like the frog who's in the pot of water being boiled. We take it every day. So we don't understand when we're getting scalded. 
you get a, this great opportunity to jump back in and be like, it's really hot over there, guys. So what do you yeah. see? The biggest, biggest change and the biggest difference for me, not only with being away 20 years, but in the past two years is just how consistent it is. I can remember, so I traveled from San Diego to North Carolina, North Carolina to Nashville, Nashville back to LA. And I shit you not, Jim, there was not a point in time in any public place where there was not some kind of media being streamed. And by media, I mean like CNN, NBC, Fox News. It was consistent. It was constant. And the amount of people for me watching it. So we don't get this. We have the nightly news. We have it at 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. And then it's off. But the amount of people glued to, you know, just walking into the airport shop, watching somebody on a media channel, the amount of people on their phones, on their devices. And then when I started to hear people speaking, the words that people were using, the colloquialisms, it was all constant and incessant. And for me and my brain, it was so overwhelming. And it gave me a really good and compassionate look at America and why certain things are happening there right now. Because we in New Zealand, it feels like we get a little bit of grace given to us and that we can turn it off a lot of the time. And it doesn't feel like it can be turned off in America. Yeah, the ubiquity of media and the way we're constantly just mm. pushed media at us and the way we consume it. That's a really good point. All right. Well, we'll see if Facebook becomes a media company and see if that, that it'll happen. I'm not sure it will, but they certainly feel more like a media company now than they did before. We're going to move on and jump into our quick news hits. The way this works is one of us will lay a story out, the other will respond. Maybe we'll get a third response and then we'll move on real quickly. So Cassie, you're up first. Twitter, she's up, she's down. No, like actually, Twitter, up and down. I don't know if you've got this rolled out to your Twitter yet, Jim, but Twitter is now looking a little bit more like uh, Reddit and trying a like up and a like down button on replies and on tweets. And for me, my gut, when this started to roll out, because I've, I've been using it for the last week or so, first and foremost, it's not as intuitive as I thought it would be. I've hit the like down button accidentally a few times. But it feels like on a platform where negativity sometimes reigns, we're just inviting more of it by allowing people to not only be jerks in their words, but also to down like things. So it sits uneasy with me. It doesn't feel like what people are actually after, which uh, Jack, we want to edit stuff. So yeah, up and down feels more Reddit than Twitter. I wonder why they're doing it. I had not seen that, but I will say it's the circle has come around. Back in 2007, 2008, 2009, I ran an online video company called Revision 3 that was started by the same guys that started Dig. They went off to go do Dig and make it big. They were like, we have this little thing, take it over for us, run it, build it, grow it, which I did. But they got kind of blindsided by Twitter as Twitter came out and what people use Dig for. And Dig, Reddit, and a couple of other companies also did the same thing. And Dig was first with upvoting and downvoting. And they had an algorithm they claimed. And I, I won't get into all of that. There's a lot of interesting things there as well. But Twitter was in many ways part of the downfall of Dig, and they moved from their tech roots into trying to be more broad, whereas Reddit stayed pretty much in their tech roots, which was great. And to their credit, they're still around and they're still big and they're still doing wonderful stuff. I really like the up and down vote capability. I like the ability for groups of people to be able to vote on things. 
Like I said, I haven't seen it. I don't know what it looks like. I think that kind of mechanism is good. I've, there was a, an open source version of Dig called Plig that I actually used early on at uh, VidCon with my first advisory board when I'd say, here are all the stories and themes and panels we're thinking of doing. Vote them up and down and it worked pretty well, but my limit of programming kind of ran out and I wasn't really able to make it look as good as it could. So from my perspective, I like upvotes and downvotes. I like the mechanic that they bring. I like the user nature that they bring. But to your point, if you got a bunch of trolls, trolls going to jump on it and they're all going to jump on that down button and it's just going to go down to hell. Yeah. And it just it just feels like one of those things that was added to Twitter and the experience that wasn't asked for and might not be needed where Twitter sits right now and how people are using it. Yeah. Well, and to your point, like, can I just edit my tweet, please? Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our next story. This next story is YouTube. And YouTube, I call this the seven-year itch in my newsletter because they released a tip jar and a lot of people were talking about like, wow, YouTube finally released a tip jar. But guess what, ladies and gentlemen? I still remember back at VidCon in 2014, like it was yesterday, Patreon was hot. Hank Green, founder of VidCon, had this artist subscription service called Subbable. That was growing. And on stage, YouTube launched a tip jar. Now, about a year later, Subbable, it's part of Patreon. The tip jar at YouTube mostly faded to obscurity. People didn't really use it that much. It may have been that they were early, but now six more years, seven years since they launched it, the first one, the tip jar's back with the name Super Thanks. So I guess, Cassie, it just means that everything's more super duper in 2021. Isn't it just? I like this one, too, because isn't this where you don't have to be watching live to tip as well? You can watch it after the fact and tip off the back of it. So that feels pretty super duper. Yeah, I know. Look, I'm not, I think it's really nice that they're doing it. It's just what they do. Just like pull out the old code and give it a couple tweaks and throw it back up on the platform again. Yes, they did. That's exactly what happened. And if it's a seven year itch, what's going to happen in 2028? Ooh. Why don't y'all think about that while we move on to the next story? The next story, it's a Rolling Stone feature. And I don't know if you read this, Jim, but wow, it was a real ride of negativity. (laughs) It was one of those ones where I was like, oh, I really dig the catchy title, which was The Rosy Creator Economy is Music's Biggest Lie. And it basically dives into the fact that most kids want to become creators and they want to fund their lives. But woe is me. Nobody will be able to do that because there's so much content, not enough consumers, and only the top echelon are making any money. In fact, they dug into Spotify. And as of last year, only 13,400 artists, that's 0.2%, generated $50,000 or above on streaming. And of that group, only 7,800 generated 100,000. And of that group of like the millions and millions and millions of people on Spotify, 1,800 generated over half a million and only 870 artists made over a million dollars. So you've got the crux of the story is that The creator economy is just selling false dreams, especially if you got a guitar strapped to your back. Well, I have a couple of responses to this. First of all, it was a little bit of a hatchet job by the reporter because he started conflating the creator economy with music. And that Mm -hmm. study specifically asked about people wanting to be a YouTube star. And then when he went through the story and continued going, like he just said, all creators are music creators. He basically he made the two sound equal when they're not. He also lit into Jack Conti at Patreon saying that they were like, you know, exposing the dream, blah, blah, blah. Sort of the hook that he had on the story is a little bit, it was comparing apples to oranges. So we'll Mm -hmm. talk about that for a minute. First of all, let's think about it. Music is just not a great business anyway. 
And if you're a video creator and you're putting stuff on YouTube or TikTok or Snap, you can have sponsors, you can have sponsored stuff, you can have advertisements that come in. If you're a musician, you're putting stuff on Spotify, you're just getting paid for the play of your music. So conflating one with the other is wrong. Looking at something that's more focused on video creators and people doing this and then comparing it to musicians is wrong. But the other thing is Spotify is a bad business, but it's doing the best it can. I mean, remember we were talking about this last week or the week before where say YouTube gives away 50% of their revenue. TikTok gives 7% of their revenue to creators. You know, others are giving up 1%. Facebook's not even doing a percent. They're doing 0.67 of a percent. Well, I looked at the numbers. 2020, Spotify brought in $9.5 billion in revenue. They paid $5 billion of that out to musicians and artists and stuff. And so that's 52%. So that's kind of almost even better than YouTube. YouTube like. But you know what? They lost $800 million. So they brought in $8.5 billion, but they still lost $800 million. So again, it goes back to my first point. Music is a bad business. If you want to be a creator, don't be a musician because you're much better <laughs> off being on TikTok and becoming a DIY talker or something. This is why I love you because I spent a full week in Nashville and man, the amount of folks that were just trying to get out there, it's like actors in Hollywood. You know, it was, you could see all these dreams with every little footstep falling down the street, but you're right. The place to do it ain't Spotify. And it is going to be the lucky ones, right? So I'm with you. I read this and, you know, as I was drawn in by that clickbait headline and then I read it and was like, ooh. Look, to be clear, the creator economy is about people creating. The passion economy is about passion. A lot of people Mm -hmm. do it just because they want to do it. Like this podcast. We're doing this podcast because it's fun. It's interesting. We like talking to each other. It's like interesting and informative. We're not getting paid to do it. But I don't I mean, feel, not yet, Jim. Not yet, right. Wait, we might be. Wait until those sponsorships roll in. <laughs> exactly. But even if they didn't, I think it's great to do and explore and, you know what, build a community around. So there's value in the community that can be measured beyond money for many people. So it doesn't mean that for the 75% of people that are in their 12 years old and want to be a creator, they're not thinking they want to make that their career. Well, you know, they'll grow up and figure it out, but they'll still be creating just like musicians, like, you know, friends who are musicians in college yeah. who are still playing music. Yeah. You know, they might be getting 25 bucks to play an open mic night, but they're still playing music. And that's part of who they are. That's right. And it's measuring that success beyond monetary, right? That's what I love about the creator economy. I like that about the passion economy as well. But the creator economy is beyond just the monetization. It's about that community. And that's what I love about it. Yep, me too. All right, last story here. And there's probably not that much to say about this, but I'll just roll it out here. I just blew me away. So OpenSea, which is a marketplace for NFTs, non-fungible tokens, you've probably heard of them. If you haven't, they're sort of digital crypto wrapped things that you can buy that are unique and then you can sell them and hopefully make money someday. OpenSea is kind of the number one out there. They raised a $100 million Series B. So first of all, props to OpenSea doing a Series B at $100 million, Not that likely. It's great they wow. raised that much money. They can do something really cool. I think NFTs are a little bit in their trough of despair right now. They got hyped up and people are like, now they're just, you know, pooping all over them. But I think they're going to come back and be really interesting. But I wanted to roll this out and say, look, first of all, great open sea. I'm a believer in NFTs long term. Want to know what you thought, Cassie? Yeah, I'm in that trough of disbelief because that's just the way that my millennial brain works right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also always staggered by the number, right? Like $100 million dollars. That is staggering. But we've seen that with NFTs, right? And we see that. So maybe we're coming up and out of that trough looking at this the way that it is. 
good on you, OpenSea. And I want to be like you, Jim, and see the long term for NFTs and understand more where the value is going to be for normal humans who maybe don't have funding like this. So yeah, good for them. Yeah, I want to leave you with one thought. I didn't have the math. I didn't look this up. It just came to me when I was listening to you. But you know, I think that $100 million is like, what, four beeples? So <laughs> congrats for getting four beeples. <laughs> All right, everyone, that's it for this week's Inside the Creator Economy. Spread the word. Make sure you tell all your friends. I know it's Tuesday in the U.S., but 4 p.m. Pacific Monday is our normal time, and I think we'll be getting back to normality next week. We will be there, so and we will be here, and we'll be talking about all these great stories in the creator economy. I have no idea what we're going to talk about next week. But hey, whatever, you know what? what we'll figure it out because I'll still be in quarantine. Right. So we're gonna, it's going to be an all Cassie show. I'll let her do all the stories and I'll just react to all of them. Now we'll figure out something fun. <laughs> but yeah, after another seven days of quarantine for Cassie, she may be a little bit crazy. So it could be even better next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>